Well, we're, that's what we're going to be seeing today in this chapter 2 of Esther. And that is that God's people are not alone. We're never alone. Uh, it may appear that way, though, <laughs> right? We're not. This book is interesting in that it's going to show us and teach us some major Christian uh, theological positions. And first of all is the one of God's sovereignty. Um, what does that mean, someone might ask, like me? Well, simply put, it's the fact that God is in absolute control of everything. There's no detail that goes by him. He's not surprised. He doesn't learn anything. He's in absolute control of the purposes and the plans that he has, which are primarily written for us in God's Word. And we, we can know what God wants of us. We can't know everything, obviously. So that's the one thing that we're going to see here. Another thing is God's providential care. The word providential comes from provision. God always provides for his people, whatever their needs are. We learn that from uh, Abraham's journey with the Lord uh, on Mount Moriah when he was uh, off, uh, offering up his son as he was following God's command. Uh, the big question uh, at that moment was, uh, is, is he actually going to have to go through with it? And, and God knew the whole time that he wasn't going to. He, he wanted to see if he had faith and if, if he would be obedient and trust him. And we know that that mountain, uh, God caused there to be a ram's caught in the thicket of the brush and they call the place Jehovah Jireh means God God will provide so God will provide in this particular case with uh, the Jews having been taken into captivity uh, we find them in Persia Xerxes is the Persian king at this time we saw that in chapter 1 and we have to ask ourselves a question two questions uh, there's going to be the, uh, uh, um, a, the temptation on the part of uh, the antagonist of the story, Haman, to suggest the elimination of the Jews. In other words, another holocaust, basically, uh, the, the Jews would face, and they would face many in their history. And so the question is, is God going to correct injustice? All right, is the issue we deal with in our world, right? Injustice. Well, we have a, we serve a just God. As a matter of fact, one of His titles is the Just One. That's encouraging, isn't it? That we know that a God will one day, if not sooner, later, make and correct all wrongs. That's one of the inspiring things for me to serve Him, right? And so um, we learn from the past uh, the the passages like. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. I don't have to try and fix things that are wrong. God will. That's what we're going to learn here in the story of Esther. And, and, the, and the most beautiful thing is what we learn in Romans 8.28. And these are all things we talk about in different passages of the Bible. In that all things work together for good to those that love the Lord and are called according to His purposes. What does that mean? God enters into all things, whatever they are, good, bad, and the ugly. He enters into them. He intervenes. And he makes good of whatever the circumstance may be. We saw that when we went through the story of Joseph. And now we have Esther. So last week, and we're going to look at uh, chapter 
two today. Parts of it, obviously it's just a long chapter. There's no way I could go through the whole thing in one, one setting. But I did also want to kind of do a little of a summary of what we saw last week in chapter one. Okay, just briefly to kind of reinforce where we're going. Now I always teach, and I'll repeat myself probably if not once, a thousand times. Context, right, is important. It's good to see what happened before, what's happening in the moment, in the thing we're looking at, and what happens afterwards to get the context so we have the right interpretation. And then if we have the right interpretation and we have the truth about what God's saying to us, then we have the confidence to apply it to our lives and know that God's going to honor his word. Amen. So let me just pray for the sermon on, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll just pick up with a little bit of background. Um, some history this day, uh, kind of important to understand that. A uh, little history, a little bit of maybe trying to figure out some angles on why I inspired and motivate Xerxes to do what he did. You know, it just seemed kind of a crazy thing, but he, he did it, and we're reading about it. And, uh, and then the response from his wife, Vasti. Amen. So let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, bless our time in your word. Uh, these are chapters, Lord, that are very instance, uh, very uh, interesting and filled with a lot of information. Help us to break through, kind of go through and break it apart and find the, the nuggets, Lord, the gold nuggets in there, the, the principles and the lessons, Father, so that, that we can grow in, in understanding of who you are and what it is that you ask of us and require of us. So that then we can not just be uh, uh, in, informed, not just have more in knowledge, but to take uh, wisdom and apply them to our lives in a practical way. So that we might bring wit uh, witness to our faith to a world that doesn't know you. So that we might be um, effective witnesses, Lord, and share, Father, the good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As people would come to us curious maybe or wondering and we can share with them Lord um, make them know what we know just as you have with each one of us in our relationship with you we thank you for that in Jesus name amen so last week we learned about this Persian king Xerxes there's a summary he was a pretty arrogant person full of pride uh, he had absolutely no humility and uh Clueless in some uh, areas, uh, it sure didn't help that he liked to drink and have these parties that lasted six months. Uh, and the bottom line, he was godless. He didn't know God. And so his behavior reflects that, you know. And he wanted to impress his subjects in this, these three banquets that they had. And um, he showed his, off his wealth and power. And uh, he, he made... Uh, uh, he wanted everyone to see his majesty. And, and then he makes, in the midst of one of the parties and banquets, he makes this really bold request of his, his wife, the queen, Fasti. Wanted her to appear before him and the people at this banquet and show off her beauty. And I talked to you a little bit last week. There's some suggestions that uh, he was wanting her to show up immodestly. Right? And he's, he's just lift up with pride. He's kind of drunk on his power. And, uh, and I'll tell you in a little bit why he had these banquets. I, I think I, I, I pinned it. But for now, um, 
he, he's also, uh, you know, lifted up with pride and, and something about that, it kind of makes you uh, make decisions that, that aren't always too, too wise. You know, he was weakened by his indulgence. Remember, the wine was pouring for months, for months. Today will probably be the biggest day of drinking in America because of the Super Bowl. Uh, we kind of get the idea, right? Just go into the stores, huge displays of beer and alcohol, right? I'm just saying, we, it's not like we don't know what that can do. And so what he did not expect in chapter 1, and you'll find all this in chapter 1, he did not re- expect that she was going to refuse. And that kind of threw a wrench in the gears, right? And I do want you to keep in mind uh, this one very important uh, fact, this one important principle, especially for leaders, but really all of us, because aren't we all connected with people at some level, whether it's our families, our church, our workplaces, I don't know, even recreation, you know, someone might be a coach or someone, you know, in all kinds of areas, we might be part of a uh, of uh, a golf club, a uh, country club. I, I, we're, we're always around people. So here's what I want you to remember. We look and kind of summarize this king, Xerxes. That's X-E-R-X-E-S. The Greek name for the Persian king. And it's this. Whatever the king does affects the kingdom. Whatever goes wrong in his soul and the realm of his mind and his emotions or his will, it has an immediate effect on the collective body that is the kingdom. That's how leadership works, right? Being the one in charge. Well, I can say it this way too. Let's reduce it to us because you can say, well, what does Xerxes have to do with us? And that happened some, you know, 4,000 years ago. Well, I can show you whatever you do affects your kingdom or your life, your family. Uh, whatever is wrong in your soul and or in your mind and or in your emotions or your will has an immediate effect on the collective body of your life, your family, your friends, your co-workers so on and so forth. Don't ever believe for a second that you don't have an influence. And we're here only at this point talking about this pagan king. Right? And uh, of course he's going to impact his kingdom. And then we'll see later in the story that there's going to be someone, one of his advisors, Haman, who's going to suggest eliminating the Jews. And his decisions, that is Xerxes, the king of Persia's decisions, are going to now impact, and here's what I want you to see, God's people. So when it begins to impact God's people, that is the decisions of others, and injustice rears its ugly head, and it has to do with God's people, believe me when the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, that it's true. Sooner or later. And I want you to see that God is going to and I'm giving you kind of like highlights at the beginning of what we're going to run into so that you're kind of prepared to see it throughout the story. Because what we have here is a story inside a story. What we have is 
God behind the scenes, apparently, because we never hear of his name. We never see anything like prayer or worship going on here. It's just we see God's hand, though. And I want to tell you right now, that's true for you if you're a believer. God's hand is in your life. And there may be things that happen to you that you can't control or even know where they came from. I always like to say, man, that came in from sideways. Because I'm expecting it to come in from like in front of me and attack or I've even got my eye on the back. And, but sometimes these things come sideways at us and who knows. Have you ever said that about maybe a, a, a something that uh, occurred in your life and you're like, where did that come from? I wasn't expecting that. Did anyone hear? Is that just me? Right? What do you think, Michael? We have a guest back there. Michael, welcome. Have you ever got stuff coming at you sideways and it like smacks you upside the head? <laughs> it's what, so anyway, that's kind of what this story is about. L this is kind of real quickly. In chapter 1, remember the king was married with the wine. That's verse 10. I'm just going to touch on some verses that talk about the principal things that happened. He commanded that his queen Vasti be brought before him uh, with her royal crown. And then show her off, right, uh, and her beauty, because uh, it says literally she was lovely to look at. And then uh, Queen Vasti refused to come at the king's command. Uh, uh, and, and so he was enraged and, and anger burned within him. He had a fit of rage and pride. Uh, and so he was going to, because of what she did, because she refused him, he was going to make a choice to which he would not be able to retreat from and he would no longer, and he decided he would have nothing to do with her. She could never the rest of her life appear in front of him or be with him. That was the choice. That's found in verses 15 through around 19. Uh, summarizing it real quick. Uh, because she didn't come, then all of a sudden there was a law according to verse 15. Like the question is, what's going to be done with her? She's, it's a bad example for, for the women of the kingdom. They're going to all refuse and not obey their husbands. If the, if the queen has done such a thing, and of course the uh, trickle effect, you know, how we talk about uh, tr uh, trichonomics, you know, if something's going really good up here, it's going to eventually trickle down to us. Well, that's what they were uh, concerned about. There were seven advisors uh, that um, spoke to, to King Xerxes and, and, and they, they advised uh, that maybe it, he had to do something because the queen's behavior was going to be known to all the women of the kingdom and then they were going to uh, look at their husbands with contempt, without respect. And so, um, because she didn't come, there's verse 18 and, uh, and then of course um, at the end, verse 19, it says, If it please the king, this is the order, let a royal order go out from him, a new law, Right, And uh, it said, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vasti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, that's his Persian name, and let the king give her royal position to another one who is better than she is. Right? So here's what we have in the first chapter. He tries to degrade his own queen. Not a good idea. You know, your wife. And found out that it wasn't going to happen that way because she wasn't cooperating. Right? So by his choice, listening to his advisors, they make a law. And so what happens is he cut himself off from her forever. Could not go back. 
Because the question is, again, what are we going to do with this woman? She's not obeying. And then, of course, he's a leader. He's the king. You know, my students at the high school, when they, you know, you young people know what I want to talk about. When they say, I've been dissed, they're talking about disrespected. He'd been dissed. <laughs> and so he's got to, what does he got to do? He's got to save faith, and then he's got to, reaffirm his authority for, you know, for the kingdom. Otherwise, he's a lame duck. That, that's what happened in, in chapter 1. Right? It's going to upset the whole kingdom, but he made that choice because he listened to the wrong people. You find that from verse 20 to 22. So he sets in motion these laws that can never be changed or altered and they're going to have their consequences. And here's what I have to say just to finish chapter 1. And I'm going to move to chapter 2. That was a quick little summary. Listen, this is real important. This is really a lesson, the primary lesson, uh, not the only one because we learned a lot. But here it is. Some decisions that we make can't be changed once we take them. You can't undo them. You've made them and there comes the... Uh, Inevitable consequences of those decisions. I've made some. Now that's when you look in the mirror and you say, well, I say, Robert, that was really dumb. And you don't just look at it once. You're looking at that mirror for a while. We suffer if we make the wrong decision the consequences of those decisions and we can't go back and undo them. You can't unwind them. That's a terminology used in the car business. Supposedly once the people sign the contract and drive off the lot and you know cross into the street like now they're on the public roads you know that that deal can't be unwound. That's the terminology that they use. That's hopeful thinking. It can be if there's right reasons. So in this case, decisions we make, you just can't go back and undo them. And this king made some foolish decisions, made decisions that he believed to save his own skin, but they would come back later to impact him. So now let's go to chapter 2. You're going to see it up on the screen. And I'll just look at a, a few of the verses there. But the way it starts, and uh, guys, if you can move the screen to the next... Uh, I guess they're back there. So it says this in verse, uh, verse 1. After these things, and then you'll know, it says, When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vasti. That's the queen that he remembered. And what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young man who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to a harem in Susa. Remember, we're reading, about, we're reading about a pagan nation. In Susa, the citadel, under the custody of uh, uh, Haggai, the, the, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, let their cosmetics be given to them and let the young women... Who, who pleases the king be queen instead of Vasti. Uh, this pleased the king and he did so. Uh, so, but, but I wanted to touch on first, what does it mean by after these things? Well, verse 16, if we go further, you can look at it from where you're sitting and you have it in your 
Bible, it suggests or it indicates to us that there was actually a four-year span between the chapter 1 and chapter 2. So four years go by. And we're kind of interesting that in history we know what happened. Right? So after these things is referring to obviously what happened in chapter 1, but also what happened in that four-year span. Xerxes uh, went to war against Greece. And he was determined that he could win. So now here's what I want to say. Remember the banquet that was six months long? What he was doing there was building alliances with his empire, all the provinces and all the princes of his empire, to go up against Greece. Has anyone ever seen the movie 300? Okay, that's the point here. He lost that war, by the way. And uh, he tried to solicit in those banquets military uh, allegiances but he lost the war, and secular history tells us that the Greeks' soldier was just much better. One um, reference that I found suggests that one Greek soldier was equivalent to ten Persian warriors. That's a pretty good soldier, right? They were, the Greeks were outnumbered. I don't know if I'm going to say this right. This battle called uh, Thermopylae. That's where the movie 300, there's a narrow passage they had to go through and only a few could get through. So obviously they couldn't win the war. And so uh, Xerxes is defeated. The Greeks uh, at that point turn, begin to turn now history and they become powerful empire that they would become. And to this day we're impacted by that empire. Democracy, philosophy, Western thought, right? Lots, lots going on there. But he, get, he comes home defeated from this war. And guess who's not there to comfort him? Vasti, his queen. And that's the suggestion. So the servants see this. It's, and him pacing back and forth. Right? And uh, so they decide to come up with a plan. And that is we're going to call out into all of the empire... All the beautiful young women, and we're going to have a beauty pageant. Kind of crazy, huh? <laughs> it's part of their culture. I, I think if you read it at first, you're like, huh? He couldn't, like, even though at some point, maybe four years later, he probably thought, uh, I think I probably didn't make the best decision. Couldn't undo it. Remember we talked about that? So, what happens then is they get these ladies together. And it's interesting, the last part of verse 4, this idea of the women um, basically putting on a pageant, a beauty pageant. Um, it, it, it says, this pleased the king and he did so. Um, from a guy's perspective, this isn't rocket science. Of course he was pleased. And so they did it. Now, I read in a, another commentary that Josephus, the uh, historian, uh, he, he says that there was a total of 400 women brought into this beauty pageant, if you want to call it that. And um, the most beautiful of them and the one that he was pleased with would be selected the queen to replace Vasti. Okay? Out of 400. Out of a whole empire. Okay, I don't know if you see where I'm going. 
Esther at some point would say, Who? Me? Esther. By the way, she hadn't revealed, we'll read that more next week because I want to kind of spend some time on the fact that she did not reveal she was Jewish. Okay? Kind of like, just think of uh, the Second World War, Nazi Germany, right? You're probably not going to uh, voluntarily give up that information because there's consequences. And... Um, Anti-Semitism isn't something new. It had happened back then too. So these women were going to come and then he would pick a queen. And interestingly enough, in at least the text, when you read it and just try to read it, read it, you don't find that there's any indication that these girls were objecting to this. And then reading further, it's... The fact of the matter is it was an honor to them in that culture to be brought into that beauty pageant. Obviously, it's possible that Esther, being Jewish, being beautiful, maybe not, although she's part of the culture, she also has the Jewish culture. It's probably, it doesn't say, maybe not an agreement, but... Um, what's she going to do about it? I mean, she does, and that's part of the conversation we're going to see that she has with Mordecai, her her uh, her cousin who adopted her because her parents had died. Most likely, they died in one of the uh, journeys when they were taken into exile from from Jerusalem from from Israel some some time earlier. So it's part of their culture, and that's what I want you to see. We don't have to like say to ourselves when we read these stories, hey, well, I, don't, you know, I don't agree. Well, we don't because we come from, we're, we're, we're another people. We live in a world, though, that we're aware of what's going on out there, don't we? So, that's what happened. So, verse 5 now introduces us to the next character in the story. So now we have, of course, Xerxes and we have Esther, and we got those names of those advisors, hard to say names, and I would probably forget them. But here we have, at verse 5, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, which meant the capital, whose name was Mordecai. Mordecai's name, by the way, means um, little man or humble man. So this is a man of humility. Uh, by the way, Esther has a name too, you'll read about here in a minute. Uh, a different name because there's the Jewish name and then there's the Persian name. So this, Mordecai is the son of Jair, the son of Simeon, son of Kish, a Benjamite. So he's from the tribe of Benjamin. By the way, what king uh, would comes out of the Benjamite tribe that we know for Israel? None other than Saul, right? And then we see, so he's a descendant of that family. And it says, who were carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away by uh, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up uh, Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. So here we got, Mordecai is the cousin of who? Esther. How do they get into Persia, they came in that those waves of the relocation, uh, exile of that the Babylonians had imposed on Judah, and uh, conquered the land. And right, and so 
Esther, uh, we, we know her name is Hadassah in, in, in the Jewish uh, language, which is Myrtle. And then in the Persian name, guess what her name is? Morning Star. Like Venus is her name. Esther means Venus. She's a light. I've got to point that out. She's a light in a dark place. Oh, by the way, she's one of 400. She, she's a part of the tribe of Benjamin. God's people. You know that God has people everywhere? You know that, right? In every area of life. God has people in business world. God has people in politics. God has people in the Super Bowl. Apparently the two quarterbacks are believers. Hurt and uh, Patrick Mahomes. God has people everywhere. Why? Because God is working everywhere. We're, remember when um, Elijah had his encounter with the priest of Baal, priest of Baal, you know, the fire and the water and the altars and the sacrifice, and, and then um, he was threatened by the queen. You guys remember her name? Jezebel. He runs into the desert for a couple of days. And he's obviously fatigued and tired and comes to a place where he has the attitude of woe is me. I'm the only one. Right? And what does the Lord tell him? I have how many that have not yet bowed their knee to Baal? Anyone remember that number? 4,000. Oh, we're not the only ones, church. <laughs> we might be small in number, but we're not the only ones. There's others. God has His people placed strategically because there's one thing that can never be thwarted, and that's His plans. His plans for His people, but I will say this too, His plans for you. Well, come what may come, be what may be, you may think, woe is me, but that's far from the truth when you trust Him. He will forge a way for you. He has resources you know nothing about. You know, in this very church, oh, we're small. God has placed people in here. And as pastor, I don't, I have made it a rule. We have our trustees I don't know who gives or doesn't give. I don't want to know. I leave that to those people. The, the we put it, elders and trust in that. It's kind of good for the pastor not to have access. And I don't have my own special credit card or nothing from the church. I have nothing. They just pay me at some point, right? And that's fine. And that's the way it works out. That's our agreement. I'm going to say it for this reason. I discover later there are people that you would least suspect or even have a clue because they live such humble lives. They belong to the Lord. They supported in ways that we never would imagine. They had resources you knew nothing about. 
And when the need was there, God always provided. What I'm trying to get us to see here is God handpicks this orphan woman, blesses her with great beauty and grace, because it wasn't just that. But here's the part I want you to see. When we keep on reading, we know about this banquet that's going to come up. But I just want to mention something real quick. And that is that there was a large Jewish community still located outside of Judah. Because remember, 40 years earlier, Ezra had already gone back. These people decided to stay. They didn't go back. Now we have to remember, at least 70 years had gone by. Right? Ezra had returned. Mordecai and Esther obviously are still in Persia. And here's what you need to know about what was left of Israel or Judah, the land, was considered wild and backward place. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the, the place to go to, apparently. And Mordecai, he has his home in Persia. And then this happens where a young woman, speaking about Esther, and we're, we're reading here after chapter, uh, verse 7. It says, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So the king... Oh, by the way, do you know that even your DNA is designed by God and purposed by God? I used to struggle with being short. <laughs> big, big question. You know, if I had been like six inches taller, I probably could have been a professional football player. I was pretty good for my size in high school. The only thing is, when I went to college, I got smashed once and quit. I realized, whoa, I'm not in my element. I got, I got, I'm literally ran over. And I felt every bone in my body crying out, this is not for you. This is not for you. <laughs> right? Everything about us, God made us the way we are. So I've accepted the fact that, as they say in Spanish, I'm a chaparro. You know, chaparrito. And I'm accepting the fact that I'm losing my hair. It's beautiful. And I'm accepting the fact that sometimes I struggle to roll my R's in Spanish. Just the way he made me. Do you know, uh, everything about us is designed perfectly for whatever God wants us to do. I cannot play, uh, Jesus, I, I can't play the piano. I've tried. I can't even... I have a hard time whistling and walking at the same time. And what I want you to see is God always has, again, I'm going back. God always has his person. And if you know Christ and you know him as your Savior, he has you too where he has you. You know, a lot of times we want to run away from where we're at thinking that's going to change our life. And it goes back to that movie that Fer Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Wherever you go, there you are. You can't run away from you. Just accept you because he accepts you. And ask him, what do you want me to do? That's what she's going to be faced with. But when the story is given us to see, she's an orphan. Her cousin decides to adopt her because her parents had died. Well, we could just spend the rest of our lives. Well, woe is me. I have no parents. It's my parents' fault. That I am what I am and I have what I have or don't have what I don't have. Right? 
The only problem is when we're looking back, like for instance, when Adam and Eve sinned, they couldn't blame their parents. Why? Because they didn't have any. But yet they fell. Yet they disobeyed. It's you. It's you. It's you. Look in the mirror. It's you. It's no one else. You're not a victim to nothing or to anyone. It's you. Go to the cross. Fall at the foot of the cross. Repent. Say to the Lord, I need your help. And he will give you a new heart. That's when we talk about being born again. He'll give you a new way of thinking. He'll give you his word to guide you. His promises to give you hope in the future. As Jeremiah would say. And that's what I want you to see. We can dig through all these and see, oh, there's a story here. But then under the story, there's a greater story. And under your story, there's a greater story of what God wants to do with you. Trust Him. Enjoy it. Put a smile on your face. And use the hinge when you go through difficulties. You know what the hinge is? You just go like this with a smile. Why? Because you know he's in charge. Even though you don't understand or could ever understand, he wants you to trust him. So we don't even get to the part yet where there's a threat to them, but they're building on this story. So this beautiful young woman, lovely to look at, eye candy as we would say, her father, father and mother died. Mordecai took her as her, uh, his own daughter. The when the king's order and his edict, verse 8, were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the capital, the custody of, the, of, of uh, Haggai, uh, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. He was a eunuch, by the way. And the young women pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided... Okay, so Esther pleased Haggai. That's the one in charge of the women. Do you see Grace? There's 400 of them. Then I'm sure they're all stunning. How does this one get pinned out out of all of them? Grace. First, the grace of God in the heart of the eunuch, Haggai. She was able to, whatever way God did it, to appeal to him, and he was in charge of all of them, and guess what he does? He gives her special favor. Do you see that? So it says, verse, uh, the young woman pleased him, speaking of uh, Hege, uh, Hege, I don't even know how that name goes. That guy. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. See, when we are in God's plans, grace is always the one variable that always puts us ahead of everything and everyone else. You can't buy it. Because God, grace is God's unmerited gift. It's unmerited favor. You can't buy it. It's His gift to you. In whatever circumstances you are living in, He gives you with His grace. And what could have, should have, would have happened, doesn't in the natural realm. And the supernatural rises in your life because God is present with you and His grace is. And it says that the woman pleased Him and won His favor. Favor, favor. See, it says right, it's like leaping out at us. 
Wow, it's wonderful to have God's favor, isn't it? Right? And quickly provided her, notice the provision came in right away. When you're God's person and he's moving you in his direction for his purposes, you're going to be a winner. For his glory, to keep it in context, for his glory, he quickly provided her with her, with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. He liked her, made provision for her. She got special makeup. How about that, ladies? That stuff's expensive from, from what I've been told. I'm not going, I, haven't, I haven't bought any lately. I do have chapstick, though. The cosmetics were provided her portion of food. Then she had seven women that tended to her so that she would even be, in spite of the fact that she already was beautiful, more beautiful. What's the point? So that, what? The king would notice her. And I believe that that grace was there. We'll read about it later and I'm going to cut this off now. I believe that that grace was there to where he saw something that God had put in her heart. God had the beauty of the Spirit in her. I believe that's what happened. And here's what I will end with, right? We begin to see, in, without any words of the name God, without any worship songs or prayer even being made. You don't see it here. There's no prophecy. There's no um, mention of uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or anything. We, get, we begin to see the hand of God in an awkward circumstance. This can't be too comfortable going to this beauty contest. But there she is. And here's my point. God's grace is what matters. And that was present. Amen? So may God richly bless you. Hope you can take from this something that you can apply to your life outside of these doors. Because it's a great thing to hear about it in here. But if you don't use it, you lose it. Go do something and say, I'm trusting you, Lord, with who I am and what you made me to be. And in the plans and purposes you have for my life. And always preface it. And may they be for your honor and glory and the extension of your kingdom. They're not doing it for you, but you get to enjoy the ride. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank you again. And as we uh, go through these passages, Lord, help us to see the truths and the principles and the lessons there, Lord, that we can take from here and use them, Lord, to further your kingdom and, to our, our, and our understanding of what it is that you want from us, Lord. Help us to keep it simple so that we don't make it too complicated because it's not. Because the, the variable in this equation is always you. You're the one that solves the equation for our life. And help us to know that that's what's most important. Help us to guard our hearts, our minds, and our relationship with you so as to not break our fellowship with you, Lord, but to be in a situation, Lord, where we're walking daily with you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And look forward to what you're going to do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.